how did we as a as a particularly an English culture actually um, get so death phobic? And there are different points in history that we could, I think, that we could look look back to. But we could draw the line at the First World War. I think there's a particular marking point because the First World War was a, a great traumatic event and so many so many people died over a short period of time. And for the most part, they died across the channel in France and, and, and so on. And that meant that there was no funeral, there was no body, there was no corpse to, to actually be sure and to look into the coffin and to see, yep, that is Uncle Fred. Uh, there he is. There he's dead. And you can be sure that some people who got the telegram to say, I'm sure, sorry, but, you know, Frederick has has died. And and, the, and actually they turned up again. Uh, you know, they weren't dead at all. And that those rumors went round. So there was an uncertainty around actually knowing that somebody ha actually has died. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with Mike uh, Grenville. Now, what I know about uh, Mike is that he's an independent funeral celebrant and he also is a death doula. Now, I don't know anything about that. So as soon as we can, we're going to hear what that is. But I wonder if we could begin, uh, Mike, by you telling us a bit about yourself and how you got to be doing these particular occupations. <laughs> Well, it was about, um, where are we now, 2013, uh, no, 2023. It was about about 20 years ago in 2003 uh, when my mother died um, that I realised I didn't really know what to do. And uh, She was very clearly dying and she died over over the course of a morning, really. But she was very, com very co uh, conscious. And uh, I realised I really don't know how to, you know, what should I do at this moment, you know, and I... And I realized that my, you know, the people I knew, my friends and, and some people around didn't really know either. And it was clear, it felt, suddenly I realized there's this huge gap in my life, kind of assuming that the people are close to me are going to live forever and, and me too. And obviously they're not. And it was like somehow death seemed to be something that we're a bit embarrassed about and don't really know what to do. So that really sparked my um my my interest really i mean it's something i've i've always been comfortable and you know a little bit death curious perhaps but um not taking it seriously and so gradually that interest in it grew and the more i looked into the subject the the, the bigger the subject became um there's so many different aspects to the the one topic around death and dying um I I trained as a funeral seller. Well, I I started training as a death doula. You asked, what is a death doula? And I, I did a, a one-year course in training as a death doula. And, 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 and what is a death doula? Well, I think it means lots of different things to different people. There's no one kind of job definition, but I think it's really somebody who is comfortable in talking and dealing with death. It might be somebody who, it could well be, you might go to a death doula to support somebody to support the family of somebody who is dying and um 
so you know that, that that could be around all sorts of things around that topic it might be in supporting the family it might be giving them advice it might be actually being part of the care team the support team for that person who's dying it can mean a whole range of different things it's not one small specific uh, definition. So I trained as a, as a death doula and then I realized, well, hold on, the, that person dies and then what happens next? I want to be part of the next process. You've built up this relationship with the family and the person and now, they've, now they're dead and uh, you, you, uh, you want to kind of go on. So I trained then as a funeral celebrant uh, as well. Uh, I also trained as a soul midwife because that's kind of slightly similar sort of a role uh, uh, and um, uh, and that perhaps deals more specifically with the kind of spiritual aspects around death and dying, uh, though not necessarily or probably not in a religious context, because if you're in a religious context, then the officials of that organization have that kind of sus. They know they have their own rules and, and structures and things to do and so on, because most of the most of the people in 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 this country, in England, in Britain, certainly, uh, are not religious. The days when religion was the dominant thing uh, are over them. So, but people haven't necessarily replaced it with something else. So, can you tell me what a soul midwife is? Well, I think, as I say, I think a soul midwife is somebody who probably is, again, supporting somebody in the death process but it's looking at the more spiritual aspects. So you might sit with that person and energetically travel with them. So kind of sit with them and occupy the same space. You might have a, um, a, a collection of different uh, tools and ideas or meditations and things to do to really support the person in their, in their dying process. Because people come with all sorts of baggage. It's like when, you know, if you if you know if you know somebody who owes you a lot of money and they're leaving the country, all those people who that 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 uh, that they owe money to rush up to that person and say, "Oh, um, <laughs> can you settle my debt, please?" So all of the issues that you've had in your life start to come to the surface. All those regrets and things that you wished you'd done and the the hurts maybe that you'd given other people. And, and I remember coming up with this phrase when my father was dying um, about 10 years ago. It's like the, 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 the locks on your memory box don't work anymore. All those things that you, you, you kind of suppressed, they, they kind of bubble up to the surface. And in my, you know, in my father's case, that was things, experiences from the war, which he never talked to me about. But in those dying months, uh, he'd, suddenly he'd burst out with these um upsetting experiences that he'd had that he that, that you know they just kind of came out and so all those things come up so it might be you might have ways of, uh, of 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 really helping the person to to face and to deal with some of those things for example i love the terminology of death doula and soul midwife and obviously it's not that that's no accident they've obviously been deliberately chosen but they give a very different flavor of death don't they than the usual I think grim attitude that we perhaps have towards people you know people are frightened to use the word death even so people will talk about about passing rather than talking about about death so it's, so it's interesting to hear those expressions but also as you're talking I was reminded of I don't know if you've seen um the Michael Pollan um series on Netflix um 
how to ch how to change your mind and they talk about the use of mushrooms i think it was with um with people who are terminally ill in order to give them a very different experience and people so that people who are quite old with terminal illness with cancer having this experience with um you know with a, a mind altering drug and then found that actually they were less frightened of dying after they'd had this experience and as you were talking it just really reminded me of that i think what that highlights is that we 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 die how we how we've lived and uh it, many many people lose their religion when they're dying and other people gain a religion when they're dying and i think that's probably an example of somebody gaining a re kind of religion when they're dying somebody who's had a lack of religious experience spiritual experience in their life and i mean yeah i i, I think that's that's the thing is that um we we put off this subject so much it's not part of our everyday lived experience we don't have the concept of that we're all going to die and that everything is around us is going to die uh, as part of our lived experience and so we we get to that point where suddenly we think oh it might happen and it's a bit of a panic then oh what what should i do whereas it is it's you know it's we we've we've kind of we've, we've become a bit culturally adrift in, in in this matter and we we don't know what to do anymore the plus side to that is that we we're not constrained by what re, dogmatic religion tells us anymore we have the freedom to choose in the past it might have been very it was very clear and if you went outside of those boundaries then the whole of society through the structures of religion made you really awkward in order to restricted your desire to explore other ideas it made it very uncomfortable but now we're we're quite free to to to, to do that but we have to do the work we have to find what it is that works for us but we have to bring it into our lives as well rather than wait until we're about to die well there's 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 a funny paradox around this, isn't there? Because, of course, actually, you know, death is all around us. It's all over the news. Every, most TV programmes and films are filled with carnage and, and, and death. Uh, and yet it's, it's as if that's done to anaesthetise us rather than put us in touch with the real meaning. I think that's very interesting that uh, word that you use there about, about anesthetizers uh, there. Uh, that um, uh, I, I think that's that that's very pertinent. I think that's what that's what it does. It doesn't uh, it doesn't actually get us to deal with the subject, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't show us really how how a healthy society would have the concept of death as part of its lived experience how do we how do we live in the knowledge that we're going to die i think there's a i think it's a buddhist saying or i'm not sure where it comes from but we should we should live as though we're going to live forever but die tomorrow and it, we live in that uncertainty because none of us none of us know um, and yet we all kind of think we're going to kind of go go on but we need to have that balance of the two but also I think what we've lost in the current age is that connection, not only to the future, but also to the past and our responsibility to the future. I think we're, we're, we're adrift in this kind of eternal present, which in a kind of one concept you say, well, living in the moment is a good thing, but we've lost our roots. 
and we've lost our responsibility to the future. We, you know, planting a forest that you will never see the, 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 the results of. That, that guardianship of the of the planet we, we, you know you buy a, a lettuce that you'll eat in one meal in a bag that will last for a hundred years I mean what a huge disconnect uh, and that, that that you know so that, that, that's that's how you know deeply uh, the concept of death needs to go into our society to understand about endings and where, you know, and the cycle of life, and and what do we mean by it? Touches onto so many aspects. You know, we could take this conversation off into so many different directions in terms of what do we mean by me? What do we, you know? What is my identity? Uh, is it you know? Is is that is that the end? And th these are questions that we get confronted with. Um, and, you know, sometimes people talk about they're frightened of dying. But that's that's something I would say that we're taught. It's it's not it, it's it's different from avoiding death. The one thing you know, if you're standing under a tree and you hear a crack in the tree, you you rush away from the tree. That's avoiding death. That's not the same as being frightened of what happens next. Being frightened of what happens next is the fear of a judgmental God. If I was to start to say a joke to you now, and it, and it begins like this, somebody dies and they go up to the gates of heaven and St. Peter says, there are thousands, thousands and thousands of jokes that begin with that. And if you understand the concept of that joke, that means you understand and you have culturally, even if you're not a Christian, you have culturally understood the concept of a judgmental God. You may or may not get through the, based on these um, like the Monty Python sketch, you know, I'm going to ask you three questions, you know, <laughs> and uh, you get one of them wrong and you're not going through the gates. That's the story of a judgmental God. And that's what you're frightened of dying about. You're frightened of being judged. And that's that's the fear of dying uh, or the fear of what happens next. Hmm. The fear of dying is often related to not wanting to be in pain. And from the NHS concern for most, most illnesses of, of dying, the, the National Health Service has pain management pretty well under control. It knows what to do. Some, you know, sometimes it's a balance between um, uh, pain management and consciousness. But uh, for the most part, they, they've got it well managed. The second aspect that the NHS is concerned about is that you die with dignity. And the third aspect is about having good relationship with the access from the people that are, are nearest and dearest to you and so on. But, uh, and, and, the, and the other aspect people say, well, you know, is to have more time. Well, more time for what? Maybe you've already had that more time. And what are you going to do with that more time? Because that more time, I think, is, is living now in the knowledge that, not in the fear of dying, but in the knowledge that, that's dying. And, and it's a and it's a knowledge of of that we will die, but we pass on. And it may be passing on. You may have children or grandchildren, or you may not. But your children and grandchildren are the other people in society. You know, because life is about relationships. 
It's all about relationships, whether it's a relationship to other people, to your neighbors, to other people in your community. We live in a very connected world. We're not sitting in the same room now. We're all in different parts of the country. We could be in different parts of the world. We're all connected and we all influence and interact with each other. So that's our connection. We're not, we, we've, I mean, quantum, quantum mechanics and physics shows us that we're not isolated, separated at all. And so that, we haven't really digested the, that understanding that has been around for quite a few years of what does it mean to be alive? What is, what is me? The same sense of me that I have is the same one that you have and you Naomi has and David has and I has and all the other people. It's all same, that same sort of me. So that's why for me, uh, you know, I'm not frightened of dying. I don't, I don't want to die now. I'm having quite a good time and I, and until I, I'd like to continue having a good time and um and and remain healthy and so on but and even when I'm maybe I'm not healthy I might still be having a good time people say well what if I lost my you know if I couldn't you know if I lost my legs or my arms or couldn't do anything well I you know I think well you know when I wake up in the morning and I haven't opened my eyes yet I'm just lying there I can't do anything but I I, I feel okay you know, I've, I I can't see anything, but I, you know, I've just got my thoughts in my head. It feels like quite a good space. So, you know, it's, sometimes people say, "Well, if I couldn't do this anymore, then I would I would be quite happy to 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 to, to you know to die. That would that would be the end." And you know, it's it's like when you talk to a child, you know, to say, "Well." You know, I mean, you're six now, but I'm afraid that's it. No more ice cream for the rest of your life. You say, "Well." life isn't worth living now suddenly no more ice cream um i know you know when my dad uh, was in his um, 90s i'm sure in his probably in his 70s or 60s or something if i said to him you know when it get what would be the thing you know if you couldn't enjoy red wine anymore uh, red wine and cheese anymore you, you, you'd say oh life probably wasn't oh, wouldn't be worth living anymore and when he was in the nursing home, we took him some some very nice web wine. I know it's nice because we'd had it for lunch ourselves. And oh, what are you trying to give me? Poison? Take the, uh, what are you? What is this all about? His his taste buds had completely changed in in that time. But he didn't he didn't say, oh well, uh, they would wheel me out there, drop me off a cliff. Not, not at all. He was quite happy in his own space because his tastes had changed. So, you know, I think that's. I, I, as life changes, we uh, it, it's the space of consciousness that's important. And I think going back to what you're saying, Naomi, about the the people who are taking the um, the magic mushrooms and so on, to having some uh, insight into the kind of uh, I hesitate to use the word sort of psychedelic cosmic nature of of life and feel a sense of connection to life. I think that's what's missing. For, for for many people. So, Mike, you've already mentioned connectedness and uh, quantum mechanics. <laughs> so, so um, do you think the difficulty in talking about death impacts upon other aspects of society, such as climate change? Oh, definitely. You know, as I mentioned about the example of the uh, of of the lettuce, I think it, we we have a we have a great problem with with with. Well, I think it's this problem of really a responsibility to the to the future, and really understanding 
the the connection that we have. So I think it's it's deeply connected to our, our our response to or lack of response to climate change, is that we're living in this eternal present without without the sense of connection of res- respect to how we got here, and a sense of responsibility to the future. I mean, I'm I'm old enough that I that I can still remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I grew. Uh, you know, I was born in 1915, so uh, we lived under mutually assured destruction, and uh, you know that was that was quite a uh, that, yeah that was quite a strong feeling in my life that we could be blown to smithereens at any time, and we lived through the Cold War, and and that was an you know that was an amazing thing. But then climate change has had the same effect on people now, feeling that. You know, I know people who've said they don't want to have children because they're concerned about the impact of, uh, or they may not have a, a safe world for them to grow up in. So it really does affect people. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's really a connection to the whole, to the, it's a connectedness story. It yeah. is a connectedness story that's, that's missing. And I think it's also partly to do with our whole um, our trauma around death and dying. Uh, I think that is, I think it's, I think there's a there's a story. I mean, how do we get so uh, removed from the story of death and dying in Western society, in in in, in particular? Because it's not true in every country. It's not true in every culture. You know, cultures are different, and so we get taught things in, in through culture our our attitudes no one sits you down in school and says says these things like the story about St Peter at the gate you know but it it's in the it's in the water as it were and i mean i have one theory which i think is you know perhaps part of part of the story how did we as a as a particularly an english culture actually um get so death phobic and there are different points in history that we could, I think, that we could look look back to, but we could draw the line at the First World War. I think there's a particular marking point, because the First World War was a, a great traumatic event, and so many so many people died over a short period of time, and for the most part, they died across the Channel in France and and, and so on. And that meant that there was no funeral, there was no body, there was no corpse to, to actually be sure and to look into the coffin and to see, yep, that is Uncle Fred. Uh, there he is. There he's dead. And you can be sure that some people who got the telegram to say, I'm sure, sorry, but, you know, Frederick has, has died. And, and actually they turned up again. Uh, you know, they weren't dead at all. And that those rumours went round. So there was an uncertainty around actually knowing that somebody actually has died. And then at the end of the First World War, there was the flu epidemic. It was so-called Spanish flu because the Spaniards were not part of the First World War. They didn't have military press censorship. And so the the Spaniards admitted that there was a flu epidemic going on, unlike other countries. And so that's why it was called Spanish flu. But tens of millions of people around the world died at that time and i think that added to the trauma and there was no knowledge at that time of ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder and so the the main advice was just bottle it up don't say anything about it man up you know if you if you're uh, experiencing stress and uh, symptoms you're not you know you're not a proper man you need to uh, to do that 
And then roughly we could say the next generation, their children's generation, were in the Second World War. So the parental patterning of how to deal with mass trauma, not talk about it, went into the next generation. And that was true, certainly for my parents. Uh, my mother lived under occupation in France. And, you know, could, she would talk very little about it. That was her way of coping with it. And, and, and my father's too, and as well as looking towards a kind of bright new future. And then at the end of the Second World War, we had again another thing that happened. We had the birth of the wonderful thing that it is, the National Health Service. But the other flip side was that it took out of the community into the hands of professionals, birth and death. And I think all of these things together have... And, and at the same time, we could also say the, the kind of collapse of organized religion of a connected, shared story about what happens and what to do. I think that I think in this country, we would actually I, I could add another layer to that, which is to go back a few hundred years and to talk about the Industrial Revolution and the Enclosures Acts, which also disconnected us from from the countryside and from life and its cycles of life into, as Blake would say, the dark satanic mills. And I think that has left a cultural trauma that we have exported around the world uh, to other places uh, that. And I think that's, that's, that, that's for me, that's part of the story about why we, we, we're so death phobic in this country. I remember seeing a, a sign outside of funeral directors and it, you know, it'll be quite common, but this one particular occasion, I was cycling past in a village and there was a funeral directors and larger than the, the name of the funeral directors was a sign that says 24 hour service. That is a death phobic society. If somebody dies in the house at three in the morning, they want them out of there by five. <laughs> you know, that's what that story says. You do not need to call a funeral director at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yes. So it's so interesting to hear you, um, to give your theories there, Mike, about why we are like that as a society, which does make me curious about whether you're whether you're writing a book or have written a book, because um, uh, you seem to have such a wealth of, of knowledge to draw upon in terms of your, your thinking. Um, no, but I also, haven't, maybe I should. <laughs> you should be. Yes, I, I certainly think you should be. I think you managed to, to make death sound very, very interesting. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, and and quite a rich experience. And talking to you, I'm reminded of, you know, I live in a place where a funeral parlour opened in a pub. And my experience of looking at funeral parlours is they're normally very boring looking buildings with vertical blinds and some dried flowers in the window. And I don't know whether it's because they opened in a pub, in a former pub, but this funeral parlour is much more like a, a bespoke um, a boutique hotel. Um, so it's, it, it it's inviting you pass it and it looks interesting to go inside they welcome people in and then they've got comfy armchairs it's very it's it's kitted out in a in a very uh, visually appealing way but then they're also running groups um focus on bereavement mainly for men actually because of um the men struggling to connect with people after their wives have have died um but it, it's really a, a massive contrast to the kind of funeral parlor that you're describing there mm. where you see this kind of like 24-hour emergency um yeah. to get the body out of the house i remember a, a friend of mine in the village where i used to live in sussex and uh, she worked in the funeral uh, funeral uh, directors in the in the village and it was right next door to the whole food shop and she'd sit there with her dress desk that looked out and you could in a big window and she could look out and see people coming and she'd see a friend going into the whole food shop and pop out and say oh do come in for a chat she said 
oh, I don't want to go over the threshold, you know, as though somehow, you know, this is voodoo, you know, this is, uh, you know, if I go to the funeral parlor, then something's going to happen. You know, somebody I know is going to die. You know, I mean, this is weird stuff. But this is this is really where where people are living in that level of don't talk about it and it won't happen. It's... Absolutely, I think people are really quite quite frightened of it, aren't they? But yeah. it's changing tack slightly. You know what what makes for a good death for someone who's dying, and what's the best way to manage conversations with someone mm. who's dying? Well, the way to have a good death is to have death as part of your life. It's it's not about waiting till the end. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about how the NHS views a good death from the kind of practical points of view no pain and and um and and with dignity and uh and so on you know i don't know how much that you know that, that can be to the best that they can achieve you know and 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 they do but um you know most people want to die at home but only a small percentage of people actually managed to, to do that and of course not everybody wants their relative to die at home anyway but uh um you know it has it has its um uh, it, its things so you know i think I think that the way to have a good death is is to think it through. Think what would you like, and to communicate that with the people people around you that you're connected with, because none of us know how we're going to die. We might die under the famous Clapham bus. Um, you know, nobody goes out in the morning and says, "I was going to die under a bus today." Uh, you know, we, we, none none of us know which tree is going to fall on us or or, or anything. So, but having some idea. Uh, of what you'd like if you're ill and so on before you lose your faculties. And one of the ways of ensuring that is to have what's called a lasting power of attorney. And there, there is such a thing for both for finance and for medical reasons. And you can get that signed up so that you can nominate a person or, or, or several people who will make those decisions in the case that you, you lose the faculty to talk to make decisions for yourself and that's that's really worth doing um so that in the case that you have an accident or you get dementia or whatever it is that that you can you know have some people that trust can can take take those decisions for you those responsibilities end at the point that somebody dies so that that's when the will comes in the will is for when you from that moment that you've died and the lasting power of attorney, the LPA, is for for beforehand. So I, there was a very interesting. I was looking at this uh, some research uh, of, of the effect that COVID nineteen has had on uh, our attitudes towards death, and it's true that people have talked about death perhaps more than before. But what was interesting is that people moving to actually doing something about it hasn't increased that much. So people making wills and maybe doing LPAs and, and so on, people haven't translated that concept that, yes, they could get COVID and die quite quickly, um, hasn't really translated that. So, well, I better do something about it. Uh, so there's still that gap. Um, and that, I think that's because it's not reflected in the wiser society. And it's also because of the voodoo, as I was talking about now, that if we talk about it, it's likely to happen. How do we support families have a better experience following a following a death? How do we make bereavements easier? Well, I suppose the the thing is to be able to be in contact with them because 
uh, I, one hears again and again experiences of people who've had a bereavement of seeing friends of theirs coming up along the road and crossing the road to avoid talking to them because they said, I don't know what to say. Well, go to them and say, um, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say. Just say that. Um, and the, the, bland, the bland thing of, you know, well, if there's anything I can do, it sounds good, but actually it's not really very practical. Who, you know, you don't really know a concept. Um, it's like you go to somebody's house and they say, oh, would you like a drink? And I say, yes, please. Well, and they say, what would you like? And I say, well, I don't know. I'd probably like some uh, Veuve Clicquot Champagne 1945, but somehow I don't think that's what you're offering. <laughs> you know, give me, give me some choices, you know. Um, how about, could you make me make me dinner and leave it on my doorstep on, on Wednesday night, you know, or just any time, put me something, make me a meal and bring it around. I can put in the freezer. That's helping somebody support them with the breathing process. Don't necessarily have to go in. I had a friend once who was from, uh, from, uh, from Northern Ireland, from Ireland, and she moved to this country and one of her neighbors died and she went round to the house, knocked on the door and uh, the people opened the door a little bit surprised to see her because they didn't know her that well. But anyway, she kind of bustled in and, and went to the kitchen and started putting the kettle on and getting cups out. And the people were a bit aghast and said, well, what are you doing? Well, all the neighbours are going to come round shortly, so I'm getting things ready. No, 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 they're not. They're really, really not. <laughs> and uh, this is a very different way. This is an example of how in Ireland, a death is treated as a connected community event. Everyone's going to want to come round. The person who has died is quite likely going to be in an open coffin in the front room. And people are going to have their moment where they can go in and wander in and the kids can run around in there and say goodbye to whoever it is. And rather than what we do in English society, which is circle the wagons and only the very closest members of the family allowed anywhere near the dying person or the, or the dead person. And uh, the, everyone, they, they, I say themselves. So, you know, we, one of the ways, so how do we change that? Well, we model it ourselves. So if we have an idea that we want death to be differently, then model that, model it think about how we, if somebody that you know has has died or somebody you know somebody who has had somebody die how would you how would if that were you how would you like people to respond and to begin with that i think is the way that we can change that and that we can support people who are in bereavement because there's a lot of support often in the first few days and so on but then it tapers off pretty quickly. So what, what about a month later when that person is still suffering from debilitating grief from, from that person no longer being in their life in the same way? Now, that sparks a thought in my mind because one of the, we met, you mentioned earlier, Naomi, about euphemisms, about somebody's past. There are hundreds of euphemisms for avoiding the D word, death and died uh, word. One of the, one of the words that is often used when somebody has died, oh, sorry for your loss. Now I have a bit of an issue with the word loss. And this is something that I, I really understood from work that I've done studying with Stephen Jenkinson, who is a, a great expert on the cultural impact of, of death and dying. But he talks about lo losing something is something that you do when you go around Ikea, you lose your car keys. But the idea of somebody who has died that you've lost them 
is something that is culturally taught. If you look at death practices around the world, they're still they still feature in their life in some way. They're still honoured and respected and remembered in different ways. Yeah, and maybe anniversaries, maybe pictures, maybe all sorts of different ways, and it varies in different cultures. But the idea of loss is, is it, it, it goes back to this whole thing of, of loss of connectedness, not being connected anymore, and not having respect to the elders, the, the, the relatives who brought you here to this place, and losing that we lose losing the connection to our past and if we don't have that connection to the past we don't really know how to face the future it's so interesting to hear you you pick up on that word because that is a word i think that gets used so much and it, yeah. and it does actually cement really the idea that that everything everything is um devastated afterwards which of course is is very upsetting um, when somebody dies, but actually there's a, you know, I've also heard, um, I've heard an amazing TED talk, I can't remember the woman's name, but she spoke about the fact that you never, you never recover from the, from the person dying, but actually there is something transformative about the experience. So there was something really hopeful and uplifting about the conversation, even though she was talking about, she was a young woman who was talking about her husband having died, um, so our language is very powerful, isn't it, in terms of shaping the kinds of experiences absolutely, that we have? Absolutely, absolutely, and it, very, very much so. And it, and and um, because words cast spells, they're, they're a cultural spell, and and even even the words, the correct arrangement of letters, we call it spelling, which I think is so interesting. So they cast a spell in our consciousness. And another word that I think casts a spell on us is is the word. Paul, you know, the, we, we talk about palliative care, palliative care. Well, where does this word Paul come from? So we, when we go to a, a funeral, we talk about the people who carry the coffin in as Paul bearers. So they're bearing the Paul. Well, what is the Paul? Well, the other, the, the use of the word Paul is a, um, a Paul of smoke. It was over the town. So the word Paul is really a shroud. It's a cover. So it's a covering up of death. So the palliative care is really covering up of death. It's it's a it's a slightly uncomfortable word in that context, and it reflects a bit our societal attitude to it. Um. So, so you know, I yeah, think, so interesting. Yeah. Because we, we have these words and expressions and kind of cultural ways of doing things that we don't realize. We think those are just the way it is, but they're, they're taught and it takes some work to realize that we're, that we're in a spell and to, to break out of that spell. Got such a beautiful way with words um, yourself, Mike. Actually, in terms of the language that you're that you're using to describe <laughs> the experience and really shaping, you know, trying to I think create a different. You can just hear a different attitude towards death in your conversation as opposed to the kinds of conversations we might have ordinarily. Which which brings me to the next question, really. So, uh, you know, could our institutions manage death better? And I, I suppose I'm not just thinking about those associated with managing funerals, but other kinds of institution that might see death, like prisons and hospitals, for instance. 
Well, I think I'd in that context, I'd like to start uh, and we'll work backwards to, to those other ones is to start with nursing homes, for example, because I've had the experience and I've heard the experience re related from many other people of what happens when somebody dies. I remember being there with my, my father in the nursing home. We might be sitting in the lounge on a bright, sunny day. And suddenly one of the staff would come and say, oh, it's a bit bright in here today, isn't it? Let's just, we'll just close the curtains. And uh, I know exactly what was going on. Somebody has died and the, the coffin is being wheeled out and nobody nobody's going to talk about that person anymore. They're not here, thank you very much. And and um, that, that's the end of the story. Another one that you were sitting next to them yesterday and playing, you know, whatever it was, had dinner with them uh, only last night. They're now dead and literally gone. And that is the expression that we use, dead and gone. And we don't talk about them anymore. And I think that creates trauma for the, for the residents of that place. There's no celebration of their life and, and here, uh, what, what their life was about and all the times we had here or anything, but also for the staff as well, that it's traumatic because they've been looking after this person with very intimate care for sometimes years and so on. And now that person is dead and there's no celebration. And I know that often families invite the, some of the key care staff to come to the funeral, but very often they're not given the time off or to, uh, to, to go and do that. And I think that adds to the trauma. I think that care staff will, will, will carry a bit with them. And I think that same thing applies to other institutions, for the institution to recognize the connected part that each individual plays goes back to our word connectedness again to that understanding that appreciation of the connectedness the part that we all play in in the story of that institution in the story of of, of that society that we're all a part of that and to honor that honor that part honor the part of the people who came before and the, and the stories that they had and they brought with them how did that person end up in prison and the story behind that and and the part that actually he had this terrible story but actually while he was here this and this happened and he did that and and this this event happened and they really responded in that way and you know let's that's you know that was that was that's something that you know we can we can all do is to start it it you know we can play our part we we can all play our part look at the ways that we can play our part in those stories but look at the way we play our part in our own lives of keeping the people who have we've known alive in different ways uh, and it's not it's not necessarily easy because it's not it's not in our cultural we don't come out the door and see it as part of our life i heard a um somebody was i was talking to last uh, last autumn and she was saying that um uh, her mother lives in uh, is indonesian and um so we, it was in the context of uh, a Buddhist uh, discussion and we were talking about connectedness and, and so on and connecting community and so on. And she's saying that in this country, you have as, even as Buddhists, you have no idea how connected, what connectedness really mean. In the block of flats where her mother lives, the wall of the walls of the rooms of her flat don't go all the way up to the ceiling. That gives a bit of better airflow, but it means you can hear what the people in the next flat are doing and talking about. That's, that's a level of connectedness that we've got no concept of in the West, in, in England, in, in this at all. That's, that's a whole different level of connectedness of community. You know, we have this, we bandy this story around of it takes a village to raise a child and so on, but 
you know, we, we don't have that. We, we, we just don't understand what that means. Um, and I think it, it takes a village to look after somebody who's died uh, in, the, in the same way and to look after the community that support each other around death and dying. That is very interesting. I have to say the British person in me is um, is pulling back from the idea of, <laughs> of walls that don't quite reach the ceiling. <laughs> but actually, when you were talking about kind of institutions, I, I started thinking about, you know, when there are deaths in caretaking organisations other than care homes, so um, hospitals and prisons, if there are deaths, unexpected deaths, um, or deaths where there's, you know, something's gone amiss there's obviously there's often a lot of blame um happening and so, and so you know sometimes mistakes have been made um but i'm not sure blaming is necessarily the way to to remedy the situation prevent further deaths of that sort and i wondered whether our discomfort with death contributes to that process you know that if somebody does die if somebody kills themselves for instance if they're under psychiatric care does our attitude towards death affect what happens at that point and you know could we do that any better mm. well um simple answer to that would be it would be yes um, but um yeah I, it's a big question and i've just landed it on you on, yeah. on, on, the, on the spot so i'm not expecting you to answer it really but it's just it was um, just you know i was just thinking i wonder how how things might look different if um if we were less frightened of it well, well, indeed. I mean, one, just on the point of uh, just thinking about the point of an un, un, unexpected death, it, just to throw in that thing, because it's quite a useful thing to, to know, is that an unexpected death is somebody who has not been in touch with a, a GP within 15 days. So if you're with somebody and saying who's dying or they want to die at home and they don't want to avoid the medical pressure, you must get them involved to the point at least that the GP is involved. Because if it's beyond 15 days, then what will happen is that the police and the coroner will take the body away from you. Supposing you wanted to sit with the body, then that won't be possible. You need to keep in touch with the medical society, uh, with the GP in particular. Um, so that they say yes so when when the person you're with it dies they say yes i understand why this person died because they had this blood you know or they had this heart failure or whatever whatever it is and so on but if you do it completely um wild as it were uh, then that will cause you more problems afterwards so you need to keep at least a handle into the into the structures so that you don't have problems afterwards um i think it's 15 days is the uh, is the timeline um but um yeah i i think the whole the whole thing around because we don't talk about it we don't we don't express the things of uh explore what our fears are explore what our ideas are about what happens next it's all unspoken and unsaid and it i once I once was called in to sit with with a lady who was uh, was getting quite old and was getting was was sort of sort of dying. It was a it was a grandmother of a friend of hers of of his, and um, she had been on the Kinder transport, so she was somebody who had narrowly escaped uh, going to concentration camps and Auschwitz and so on. And as a result of her experience uh, or, or her family's and society's experience of that, she she had lost her Jewish faith. Um, she, 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 and yet she was struggling with the fact that she didn't believe in God. 
and she felt that God would be angry with her. Now, that's the kind of circular argument that you can have when you don't speak it out. It kind of goes round in your head and so on. But when you speak it out, then, it, then you can start to see how illogical the argument is and, and, and be able to go, move on from there and explore what that mean and what that, how that can be dealt with. So that's why talking about things, I think, can be so powerful and it can help us to bring out onto the table what are our fears around death and dying and how could we live a life that was more connected with death but if we talk about it i think that's that's that you know we can only start from there and we can start with ideas and pick up ideas from other places and explore those ideas um but the the, the key thing is to explore what it what is it that we're fr so frightened of and is it the how can we deal with that and so on and the answer is surely going to be that we're going to be by being more connected thank you mike david i feel i'm hogging the conversation so i'm going <laughs> not to... at all not at all um but i have got another question i'd like to uh, ask which is how come you're so comfortable with engaging with death mike i think um I think I'm, I'm, well, I'm just not frightened about dying. I see for myself, uh, I mean, I've practiced meditation. I've, I've practiced transcendental meditation since I was 19. So 50, 50, um, 50 plus years, I've been, I've been doing that every day. And I think that that has in particular given me that sense of connectedness of life. I feel a big uh, that sense of hugeness of life and that interconnectedness of life is something that is a real experience for me. And um, so I don't have the fear of a judgmental God. I have a, I have a sense of that's how life is, that life, life everything that's born will die. And I, I, but the things, but life will carry on. Um, and so it's, it, it is what it is. Life is, life is what it is. And I think if you you know you look out into space and you see how big space is and and you know it's, it's life is going on there and these huge expanses of time and my my little tiny life here it's okay <laughs> this is my little time here just uh, as identifying as me to see it going on and um, you know that'll be here for a time and and then it won't be but the me will carry on because that's what life is. It's kind of huge extended version of me. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think really making, I've made my, made my peace with it. I mean, I was, I, I was brought up, actually brought up with a, a, a Catholic mother and an agnostic atheist father. So that already created a bit of a dynamic, but I, I spent some years unpicking the fear of death and f fear of, uh, of sin from my, from my Catholic upbringing um uh, many many years ago and um i think that's 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 the key is to find some way and not all not all religion has that fear but find some way to make it less about a fear of god and more about a, a, a love of life and love of being it's okay life is what it is <laughs> so i was going to ask you what was the the preparation that you had for your particular roles but I think you've answered that already there was the training that you had and you've had a lifetime of meditation and uh, reflection so are they the things do you think that equipped you emotionally 
for the particularly challenging roles that you've had? Um, I suppose so. Yes. I, I mean, I think, I, I think it's, you know, sometimes when I've run uh, workshops and, uh, and maybe at a festival, we run workshops, um, particularly with my partner, we run a whole series of workshops at a festival called Butterfield Festival. So we have a whole, um, we have a team, we have, a, we have a whole four day, five day program of all day workshops and two separate sessions and so on. So it's quite a lot. And so if I'm holding some, quite a lot of sessions and holding a lot of hearing a lot of stories or pent up stories around death and dying. Yeah. It can be quite a lot to take on sometimes. And one has to find those ways to say, you know, to kind of ground oneself again. So it's important to find as in any profession, you have to find those ways to, um, to let, let go and um, to kind of have a shower as it were. And um, to feel, um, feel you again and not not to feel burdened by it i think that, that's important you know in different ways cycling is a good one for me um that works well um that's uh, pretty powerful um yeah <laughs> did, did you do the big i was looking on your website and i saw that you were going to do a big cycle ride from eastern europe um did you do that in the end i did um uh i i cycled along the iron curtain uh, along Eurovelo 13, which is, uh, I didn't do the whole thing. It goes all the way from the north of Norway, all the way to the Black Sea. And I did the bit from the Baltic Sea um, down as far as uh, Chopron in Hungary, which was the place where the the very first cross-border picnic happened in uh, on the, the 19th of August, uh, 1989, um, between Austria and Hungary. And a whole load of East Germans surged across the border that resulted in uh, November 89 with the mm-hmm. collapse of the Berlin Wall that uh, is so well known. But uh, um, so, yeah, I did, uh, I did do that. And that was... That was also quite an emotional, difficult journey following a borderline with, you know, looking at the impact on the landscape and remaining watchtowers uh, still there and um, memorials to people who had tried and failed and got killed for their troubles in trying to cross the border and looking at how, how the impact of that over time. And I think it also relates to, to to death as well it's interesting how uh, and it's only slowly beginning to re re um uh change is the pattern of deer deer um learned that you can't cross this line and even when the fences came down the parental patterning that the parents taught to their younger younger offspring deer was we don't go over there and so even when the fence had gone um that, that still remained. So all those sort of weird things like that, that still uh, stayed there. Thanks very much, Mike. So I think we've come to the end for it really, Mike, but um, <laughs> in terms of the questions that we had to ask you and we're almost because we're about to run out of time, but as really um, very conscious of how there are times when David and I have held conversations with people where the subject matter is, has really brought our energy down because it's been quite, Mm. It's felt quite hopeless, and and the you know it's made for, made for quite a bleak seeming future. And someone might think that a conversation about death could um, leave leave you feeling that way at the end, but actually far from it. I've found it a really enjoyable 
fascinating conversation um but also there's something really uplifting hearing you talk about death in the in the positive way that you do and thank you very much for sharing all that all that um knowledge and information with us thank you it's been it's been a pleasure and uh i i think that i think things are beginning to change there are change it can be more but i think we, we can all participate in that in that process of being more comfortable with death and making it more a part of life and understanding uh, absorbing the impact of uh, of how life works thanks mike great to meet you and great conversation thank you bye bye